Well, tonight's sermon, I hope, will help all of you. Um, I learned some things putting this sermon together, and I hope that uh, not only with the learning of the Word of God, but also the practical side of, of how to live it out tonight, I'll be able to help you. Let's stand if we can for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 13. Look at with me at verse number 1. The Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel, wherewith he was girded. The title of the sermon this evening is this, Lessons from the Last Supper. Lord, I pray tonight you would uh, guide me as I preach. Lord, speak to hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus knew that His hour was come. And that's significant. If you have been paying attention as we've gone verse by verse through the book of John, you have heard that language before. In fact, back in John chapter 2, when Mary was pushing Jesus to perform His first public miracle, Jesus declared, uh, what, sh- what, will, what, what will I do with you, woman? My hour is not yet come. He said, my hour is not yet come. And then a little later in the book of John, uh, when uh, Jesus, the Pharisees wanted to stone Jesus in the temple, uh, the Bible declares they could not do so. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But now his hour had come, and the Father had placed all things into his hands. It was his responsibility uh, to handle things from this point forward. He would direct his disciples. He would instruct Judas, and even Satan, as he would possess Judas. Jesus was fully in charge, and it was His decision whether to die or live from this point forward. Verse 1 also tells us, look back at verse 1, it tells us that having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. He loved them unto the end. They would fail Him. Speaking of His disciples, they would let Him down. But even in their failure, He would never stop loving them. You know why? Because the Lord Jesus is faithful to those who are His. When we're not faithful to the Lord, He loves us to the very end. He never stops loving us. We find the account of the upper room experience in all four of the Gospels. John does not give us the details of the distribution of the Lord's Lord's Supper elements, or the Last Supper, but He does tell us what took place once the meal was complete. 
So if you take the time to read all four gospel accounts, you can develop a timeline of events uh, around the Last Supper of our Lord. And so by way of introduction, if you want to flip that half sheet of paper over and jot these down, I'm going to give you the, the timeline of events that took place as you read all four gospels and piece it together. And uh, we're not going to read all four gospel accounts this evening. I would encourage you to do that on your own. But we are going to go through the order of events. We'll be in Luke 22 as well as John. And then I'll make reference to uh, a passage in Matthew. So, uh, very first here, turn over to Luke 22 and verse 8, and we see their entrance into the upper room. Now, uh, entrance into the upper room, that would be phase one. If you want to back up and say, well, what was phase zero? Phase zero is that there were people who prepared the upper room for the disciples, there were people who cooked the food that they would eat, and uh, that is a detail that could just about be read right past, but there were those who got the upper room ready for Jesus and his disciples, but upon it being ready, they entered into the upper room. Look at Luke 22, and look at verse number 8. The Bible says, And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. <laughs> Excuse me. Follow him into the house where he entereth in, and ye shall say unto the goodman of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished there make ready. And they went and found, as he said unto them, and they made ready the supper. And uh, as you keep reading here in Luke, what you see is that they come in for this last supper, the uh, entrance into the upper room. The next uh, event on the timeline is the last supper elements distributed. Look down at verse 14. Luke 22, verse 14. Uh, the Bible says, And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, with, with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves, or among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So they enter into the upper room. They're seated. The last supper elements are distributed. And then the next thing that takes place in the timeline is that there is a debate, a debate over who is the greatest, a debate over who is the greatest. Look down at verse 24 of Luke 22. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. We're going to make reference back to verse 24 a little bit later in the sermon. After this, we come to, we come to John 13. You can turn back to John 13, let go of Luke 22. The next event on the timeline is that Jesus washes his disciples' 
feet. Look at verse 4. He riseth from supper, John 13, 4, and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. After this, the next event on the timeline is that Satan possessed Judas. Satan possessed Judas. Look down at verse 26. Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after this sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now, from verse 31 down through verse 38, Jesus would prepare. This is the next uh, step or next uh, event on the timeline, Jesus prepared his disciples for his arrest and his death. And then in Matthew 26, 30, uh, which reads, And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. They finished by singing a hymn. So there is your timeline of events. They enter. They have the Lord's Supper elements distributed. The last meal that Jesus would have with his disciples. An argument breaks out uh, as they're finishing their dinner about which one of them would be accounted the greatest. Jesus, as they're arguing, gets down and washes their feet. Uh, he gives the sop uh, or the, the piece of bread over to Judas. Judas is possessed with the devil. He leaves, and then uh, Jesus gives them some instructions about his arrest and death, they sing a hymn and they make their way to the Mount of Olives or to the Garden of Gethsemane. I believe that the greatest action that we can take to overcome Satan in his evil is to take on the demeanor and characteristics of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, church, we must trade in our broken mentalities and adopt his mind. We must trade in our sinful habits for His holiness. We must trade in our, if you will, VIP cards for an apron and a towel. We must be willing to serve instead of looking to be served. I want us to look at three lessons or three truths out of John 13 as we consider this title, Lessons... From the Last Supper. Lessons from the Last Supper. Let's look at the first lesson I see here in John chapter 13. Notice a lesson about servanthood. A lesson about servanthood. Let me give you letter A right off the bat here. We see the paradoxical kingdom. The paradoxical kingdom. And for our young ones in here that may not know what the word paradoxical means, it just pretty much means, if I could use this definition, an upside-down kingdom. of What I thought to be, it's the opposite. Kind of like, if I could really get down on a junior high level or a fifth grade level, opposite day, right? The things that you say are the opposite. And the way we think the world works and the way we think the greatest works, it is the opposite. I remember when I was a school teacher and I had to deal with immature junior high or junior high kids, they just could not seem to meet the moment 
with the right attitude. I'd be given some kind of lecture about behavior and I'd have some junior high boy flick in the ear of another kid. Or I would be uh, talking to uh, a group of kids about, uh, you know, uh, we need to listen in, in, in uh, high school chapel and we need to be reverential and you have two girls whispering in each other's ears and uh, laughing and giggling. They just couldn't seem to meet the moment with the right attitude. And Jesus somberly is serving out the bread, symbolizing His broken body. He's very seriously distributing around uh, the, the vine juice, the wine there over um, His shed blood. And what do the disciples do as a result of Him distributing the bread and distributing the, the, the juice? They begin to argue with each other over which one is the greatest. And I want to look at them and say, guys, really? Of all times to argue about who's the greatest, you want to do it right now while Jesus is beginning to be labored in His Spirit. He's beginning to be sorrowful in His Spirit. He's literally tearing bread, symbolizing the tearing of His body. He's passing around a thing of juice, symbolizing His spilled blood. And you knuckleheads want to get into an argument about which one's better than the other? Again, Luke twenty two twenty four, and there also was also a strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. So what did Jesus do while they were hashing this out and arguing about one was better than the other? Look at John thirteen verse four. While they're having this argument, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. I bet the talk about who was the greatest stopped pretty quick and in a hurry. Here they're talking about which one is the greatest and Jesus is down on his knees washing their feet. What was Jesus saying with His actions? He was saying, the greatest among you is first a servant. But this was not the first time that Jesus had told them this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19 in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 19, find your way over there, we're going to be in verse 27. This morning we talked about... The price of following Jesus. We talked about how that the disciples left behind their careers, they left behind their uh, comforts, and they left behind their cares or the care of their families. And Peter is realizing the great sacrifice that he has made and uh, feeling very uh, burdened over that or wondering what the benefit of that would be. Look at verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Now this morning I laid out the great price of following Jesus. Oh, it is a tremendous price to truly be all in on following Jesus. And Peter, he was paying that price. He was all in on it. And he looks at Jesus and says... Listen, we're going to give it all up to follow you. What's in it for us? Jesus said unto them in 28, Verily I say unto you, 
that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. I love when the morning sermon and the evening sermon are so neatly tied together. Look at verse 30. Read that with me. Ready? But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. This is the upside-down kingdom. This is the paradoxical kingdom. This is the attitude that God wants the first to end up being last, and those who are last to be first. If I could have Brother Kyle and Brother Tom come to the platform, please, to help me. If you two men could come up here and sit in one of these two chairs, and Brother Andres, if you would bring uh, those buckets up here, please. Christ is showing His disciples as they're arguing over which one is the greatest, how it is that you are to be the greatest. You are not the greatest. Um, uh, please keep it. Scoot, scoot you back up where it was if you could there. I, you need your feet toward the edge of the platform there. Uh, he said, I want you to be the greatest, not because... Uh, of, uh, of, of some uh, thing you have done or some seat you sit in or some point of notoriety. Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, then learn to be a servant. And so here they are having this fierce debate. Is it John? Is it Peter? Is it James? Is it Bartholomew? And what is it that Jesus says? He doesn't say anything. Instead, He just begins to take off His outer garment and He begins to prepare uh, for uh, getting down and washing their feet. The role of a lowly servant. Now, when I have traveled to Peru, and this has been less and less over the uh, uh, my years there, but I remember back in 2009 when I first traveled to Peru and I saw people who did not have much income or education, they would be hired to just be a helping hand in the house. And they would do all the meaningful tasks that nobody else would want to do. And such was it, it was in Jesus' day that people uh, who did not want to uh, have any education or any means, that one of their jobs was to come up and roll up their sleeves. And when people came in, guys, take your socks and shoes off for me. I'm not doing that part for you, all right? You got to do that by yourself. I'm not touching your socks, praise God. All right. Uh, but so, so what Jesus would do, uh, or rather what a servant would do, is they would take uh, off, uh, the sandals would be removed from those dusty uh, feet, and they would, in essence, wash the dust off the feet of someone whose feet were uh, 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 dirty and dusty from being on the road. Because even then, women, uh, uh, ladies back then did not want dirt from the street tracked through the houses. Amen? How many of you ladies have a no-shoes policy in your house? Raise your hand. Uh, I'm the man of my house, but I lost that battle right there, okay? I grew up wearing shoes in the house, and um, my wife said no shoes in the house, and we don't wear any shoes in the house, all right? And so what did Jesus do? They're arguing about which one's the best. I put you, where you sleep, roll your foot up there. Stick your foot in there and get it nice and wet for me. Very good, okay, all right? And Jesus sits there, and he washes the disciples' feet, 
All right, does that feel good? Yeah. Is that water warm? It's right here. Okay, good. All right. Get your other foot in there. Autumn, his feet aren't going to sink tonight. Praise God. Tanya, Tom's feet aren't going to sink tonight. All right. And so here they are arguing, I'm greater than you. No, I'm going to be sitting next to Jesus. Remember James and John's mother coming and saying, which one of you, thank you very much, you can put your socks and shoes back on, which one of you is, uh, uh, can, my, can my sons sit next to you in the kingdom? And Jesus said, that's not mine to give. Alright? Jesus said, you want to be great, you better learn how to wash some feet. You want to be great, you better learn how to get down and do those tasks that are meaning, uh, uh, that are just uh, uh, what you would not prefer to do. I asked several men to let me do this for them, and I only had two volunteers. No one else was interested in letting pastor wash their feet. I don't blame them. I don't like when anybody touches my feet. But this is what Jesus did. He's down washing the feet of his disciples. I see, as a pastor, a lot of jockeying and positioning and metaphorical elbowing about who is the greatest in this church. Can't be that way, guys. You should not be fighting over who has the highest clout in the church. You should be fighting over who can serve more. Who can do more. Who can, who can be more involved? In our corporate world, you have a triangle. And as you start down here at the entry level, you climb up until you're at the top of a company. At a church, it ought to be that triangle turned upside down. You see, the pastor ought to serve. The deacons. The key men in the church ought to serve. There's no task that you shouldn't be willing to get down and do. You get asked to scrub a toilet around here, that's a high calling. That's a privilege. You get asked to sweep a floor around here, vacuum a carpet, that is an honor. Jesus, the creator of the universe, he got down and he washed their feet. Thank you, men. Paradoxical kingdom, letter B, we see the practical application. The practical application. These won't be on the screen, but you can jot these down. I've got a couple of sub-sub points here. Notice our example. Look at verse 12. The Bible says, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done for you. Ye call me Master and Lord. And ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Master and Lord, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done. The King and Creator of the universe took off His outer garment, girded Himself with a towel and an apron, and washed 
the feet of those selfish, immature disciples. Those selfish men. I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. I hold a higher position in uh, the the uh, uh, this, uh, amongst the disciples than you do. One day in the kingdom, I'm going to sit by his right hand. Well, I'm going to sit by his left hand. Well, well, no, I'm going to sit there. And there Jesus is. He's washing their feet. Take your Bibles over to Matthew chapter five. I have been asked what I believe to be the most difficult command of Christ to follow. And after I have studied in great detail the commands of Christ this calendar year, I would tell you there are many candidates. But when I preach this morning about following Jesus to the degree that you're to follow Him, that is a tough one. But maybe the hardest of commandments to obey is found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Did Jesus model this behavior? He sure did. Do you know who was present? When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, Judas Iscariot. Jesus washed the feet of the man who He had loved on, chosen, and trained. That man would walk out of that room just a few minutes later and sell him to the Sadducees for 30 pieces of silver. I want you to think about that from Judas's perspective. Judas has already made the deal with Pharisees or Sadducees. He's already made that deal. And he's sitting there in that room knowing what he's going to do. And Jesus is down on his knees. The man he has seen perform all kinds of miracles. And Jesus is down on his knees wiping dust and dirt and crud from between his toes. What must have been going through his mind? Jesus was loving His enemy. If Jesus can serve His disciples, then you can serve your family. Oh, I'm a man. I don't wash dishes. If Jesus can wash feet, you can wash some dishes. I don't change diapers. I don't do that. If Jesus can wash dirty feet, you can change a diaper. Well, you know what? My husband's got his work and, you know, he does his thing and, and, and don't ask me to help. If you can step up and help serve your husband and his work, if Jesus can wash feet, you say, well, pastor, you don't know how difficult my neighbor is. Love your enemies. You don't know how difficult my co-workers are. Love your enemies. 
You don't know how uh, hard-hearted and difficult my employer or employees are. Serve your enemies. You don't have any idea how uh, how hostile the environment in my home is. Love and serve your family. Jesus got down with a bunch of immature disciples, the Creator of the universe, the One that had formed them in their mother's womb, and He washed their feet. And He said, "Ye call Me Master, and ye do well. He said, If I can wash feet, then you can wash feet. He said, you are not above the one who is sending you. We see next, not only our example, we see our enjoyment. Look at John 13, look at verse 16. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Read verse 17 with me, ready? If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Can we have 100% participation in that? Can everybody look at their Bible and read that verse with me? And can you smile while you read it? All right? Word happy is in the verse. Don't frown. All right? Everybody, look at your Bible. Read it with me. Ready? If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Raise your hand if you did not know that God has called you to be a servant. There's somebody here tonight, you say, I, I, Pastor, this is news to me. I had no idea. Huh. I kind of figured there wouldn't be any hands raised when I asked that question. We all know this, don't we? Every person that came into this building tonight, you know God's called you to be a servant. Where is happiness found in the Christian life? In doing those things that we already know we're supposed to do. I told someone just yesterday in my office, I told them, if you would just live out the Christian life that you know to live out, you probably would never need to come to church ever again. How many of you would say, that's true for me too? If I just did everything I know to do, I'd probably be okay. I'd be a super duper Christian. My hand's up. You know what? I know the Bible really well. If I went forth and lived all of it, I'd be in church because that's part of what's in the Bible. Amen? You should be in church. You should be in the auditorium. You should be under the voice and sound of the preaching of God's Word. You should be attending classes. You should be involved in the program of the church because that's God's plan. But listen, how many of us, it's not a matter of knowing God's Word. It's putting into practice and daily living God's Word. That's the problem. It wasn't that these disciples had never heard, go be a servant. It was that it hadn't gotten from their head down into their heart. Are you a servant? Are you a servant? When was the last time you did something that abased you for the betterment of others? There are times I come into the building on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, and there's a toilet that's clogged. Someone goes in the bathroom and uses it, and the nastiest type setup, I mean, it's all over the toilet seat, uh, the toilet's clogged. I'm not trying to be irreverent. I'm trying to make a point here. And you know what I do? I look at that and say, I'm not above cleaning that toilet. I go find a plunger, and I take about two steps back, and I get to work unclogging that toilet. And I don't tell Angela, because she probably wouldn't touch me for a week, amen? I unclog that toilet. You know what? That's a humbling experience. When was the last time you did something that abased you? 
where you thought, oh, I can't believe I have to do this. And you did it to be a blessing to someone else. When was the last time you washed someone's car or cleaned someone's bathroom or picked up your spouse's socks off the floor or did your spouse's laundry or did something that you didn't want to do that you thought was beneath you because you wanted to be like Jesus Christ? God calls you and I to be servants. Number one, a lesson about servanthood. Number two, a lesson about sanctification. A lesson about sanctification. Let's notice letter A, the symbolism of feet washing. Look at verse number six with me here. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know Hereafter, Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus, saith, uh, Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Underline that phrase. Thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, ye are not all clean. In essence, Jesus is telling Peter here, he said, I washed uh, you clean when I saved your soul from hell. That was the moment that all of you got washed. The moment that I saved your soul from hell, your entire body was washed, and now you do not need me to wash you whole again. That was a one-time occasion that happened at your salvation. Now, uh, what you need is your feet clean. And what does this symbolize, church? This symbolizes the daily confessing of our sin. Now, Jesus would go on and say that not all of you are clean. Uh, one of you here isn't clean. He's speaking, of course, of Judas Iscariot, who was not saved, who was not a, a, a true follower of Christ. Look with me at John 13, and look at verse number 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it, it, before it, it come, that when it is come to pass... Ye may believe that I am, or I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth, whomsoever I send, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. So Jesus is saying here, our body is washed when we get saved. Uh, metaphorically, symbolically, our feet are washed when we confess our sin. Letter B, the seriousness of spiritual hygiene. The seriousness of spiritual hygiene. Take your Bible over to Psalm chapter 51. We're going to use an Old Testament example here. 1 John 1, nine. we know well. verse that's quoted in this church on a regular basis. If we confess our sins, say it with me. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousnesses. Here's the thing. I walk around uh, in this world like you do, and sometimes I uh, walk down dirty, muddy uh, paths, and I get sin all over my feet with my thinking and my talking and my behaving, where I put my eyes, what I listen to with my ears, the pride that's in my heart, uh, the way I uh, maybe speak about somebody or say something, and I come to God in prayer, and I sit there in His presence, and my feet are dirty because I have been involved in behaviors that I shouldn't be. And when I confess my sin, my feet get washed, and I am then made whole, and I'm allowed to exist and sit in the presence of God. Now, you may remember the story of David we find there in 2 Samuel, where David, uh, he uh, uh, was filled with lust one evening. He wandered out on the rooftop. He should have been at war. And he looks out and sees Bathsheba there bathing. He brings her into the palace. He commits a great sin of adultery with her. He impregnates her in the process. He then has Uriah murdered in essence. Uh, He has him murdered. And then he brings Bathsheba in and he marries her and so that it will be covered up. And what's he trying to do? He's trying to hide his sin. His feet are dirty, but he has his socks and shoes on, if you will, so that nobody will know. Uh, More than nine months goes by. The baby is born. He thinks everything is great. And then God sends Nathan into the palace. And Nathan tells him the story about the little ewe lamb that was taken and killed when the man had a whole bunch of, uh, of, of sheep there he could have chosen from. And he says to David, he says, what should be done to this man? And David said he should pay him back fourfold and he should die. And Nathan sticks his finger in David's face and he says, Thou, David, art the man. You're the one who had a house full of wives and you took another man's wife when he only had one. He was at war fighting for you and you took her in unto yourself and you had him murdered. He said, as a result, that baby born of the two of you will not live but die. David humbles his heart and he falls on his face and laying prostrate on his face with tears flowing from his eyes, we find the 51st Psalm. Look at verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Wash. Notice the the language here. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquities. And cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. That's what it means to confess. You are agreeing with God both intellectually and emotionally over your wrongdoing. And my sin is ever before me against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, in the hidden part. Thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Look at verse 7. Again, the language about washing and being clean. Purge me with hyssop, hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. You know what we need? We need on a daily basis, we need an acknowledgement of our wrongdoing. 
And we need our spiritual feet washed and cleaned. I wonder how many people go through life with dirty spiritual feet. You ever known someone, or you ever, maybe have you ever experienced an ingrown toenail? Praise God, I've never had to deal with that, but I've known a lot of people close to me that have. It's painful. I've seen people who have poor hygiene. I lived in college dorms for five years. Praise God, I married my wife. She smells a lot better than those boys did in those dorms. And I saw some nasty feet, some nasty feet. By the way, Kyle and Tom, great job on the hygiene. Amen. I'm sure you probably washed your feet before you came tonight knowing that that was going to take place. But uh, I have seen some nasty things, some nasty things, and not to go into detail, but I think that you can imagine someone having filthy, nasty feet. And I think some of us here, that's how God sees our spiritual feet. When was the last time you got on your knees and you confessed your sin to God? When was the last time you agreed with God over your sin? Christian, don't shrug your shoulders at sin. Don't, don't just be like, well, that's who I am. I can't help it. I was born into a sinful world. I have a sin nature. Oh well. Oh no. It was your sin that nailed him to that tree. It was my sin that caused him to die. He saved us from sin. And we need to come before him and confess those sins. Our spiritual hygiene is of the utmost importance. We see the seriousness of spiritual hygiene. What is this a lesson? It's a lesson about servanthood. It's a lesson about sanctification. And notice number three, it is a lesson about Satan. It's a lesson about Satan. Letter A, his influence leads to sorrow. Look with me at John 13, verse 21. Jesus is very heavy. And we'll see this here in verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, He was troubled in spirit. And testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. I don't think we can understand the horror of that statement. You understand, there were a lot of followers of Jesus that came and went. We'll call them ancillary disciples. But there was an inner core of 12 men around Jesus who were brothers on a deep level. You're talking about sleeping in fields together at night. You're talking about going hungry sometimes and missing meals. You're talking about brothers who had each other's back and helped uh, uh, play security guards for Jesus as the crowds were trying to, to mob Him and get to Him. You're talking about brothers who were there for each other through the thick and thin for three plus years and now one of them is going to turn around and betray their Messiah? Betray their rabbi? The horror that swept over that room. Jesus is troubled in His spirit. Oftentimes, people get hurt at church and they never come back. Can I tell you why I think that happens? Because church is not a place where bickering and arguing should take place. Church is to be a place of spiritual unity and healthiness. 
someone comes to church and they get wrapped up in pain, a painful experience because Christians are not acting very Christian and they just say, if that's going to be the church community experience, yeah, no thank you. I'm not interested any longer in that. Why does that happen? Because when Satan gets his foot in a church, sorrow is always the result. I still remember sitting next to my wife at the Riverside Baptist Church in Terryville, where Pastor David Townsley is the pastor. We had been greatly hurt at our previous church ministry. We had moved there into that church building and we were attending this small church. I'm sitting next to my wife. We're holding hands. Pastor David Townsley is announcing our member, our joining of that church body. Looking over and seeing tears dripping off of my wife's cheeks. Because she had been so hurt in the previous church. There had been gossip and slander. There had been... Uh, uh, there had been all kinds of nasty and unkind things that had been said of us by the, our previous pastor in an attempt to get rid of us and to hurt us. And the pain and sorrow that was felt. The reality is that if we had let it get to us, we'd be casualties out of church today wanting nothing to do with it. Why were we filled with so much sorrow? Why were our hearts so troubled? Because of gossip and slander. Will you listen to me, White Oak Baptist Church? If you have a problem with someone in this room, you have two people you can speak to about that. You can go to the Lord in prayer and directly to the person and to nobody else. Don't you let Satan get in your spirit and sow discord through gossip and slander. Do you know... The difference between gossip and slander? Slander is something negative about somebody that's true. Gossip is something that is supposed to be true. You say, well, what I said was true. Did it edify the body of Christ? If it didn't, then keep it to yourself. I've seen churches that have been torn apart God is no longer blessing those churches because great sorrow came on that church family. Gossip and slander. Sexual deviance. Dishonesty and cover-up. Satan works his way. He slithers his way into church bodies like this one. And he slowly and carefully dismantles and tears apart a church. You say, well, why was the Lord so troubled in His spirit? Because Satan had worked his way into Judas's heart. And Judas was now the cause of a troubled spirit amongst Jesus and His disciples. I preach hard against this because I want to protect the flock. All of us at times can allow our tongue to slip. And we say things we shouldn't. You say, well, Pastor, I feel like you're preaching to me. I feel like you've got your finger in my face the way Nathan had his finger in David's face. I feel like you've thrown a rock and it's hit me right between the eyes. What do I do? 
And tonight, you get on your knees, you confess your sin, and you humble your heart. And if it is necessary, you go to the person that you have slandered or you have gossiped about, and you own your sin, and you get it right. Do you understand that when you gossip and slander somebody, you cannot undo the damage that's been done? You cannot undo it. It's like taking a bag full of feathers or a feather pillow up on top of a tall building and and opening it up into the wind. Uh, You may feel bad that you did that, but uh, recovering from gossip is like going around trying to put all the feathers back in the bag. To keep this just very simple tonight, God brings unity and peace and one accordedness to a church. Satan brings discord, disunity, and the tearing down in a church. If you're wrapped up in the latter, then my friend, you have allowed Satan to influence your heart. It doesn't matter if you think you're right in a situation. If Satan is using you to sow discord, uh, then it is Satan that's involved in that. Jesus is troubled in his spirit. He says, one of you will betray me. Let her be. Not only do we see his influence that leads to sorrow. Speaking of Satan, we see his indwelling ends in betrayal. Look at verse 22. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. When there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, Simon Peter therefore beckoned it to him that he should ask who it is or who it it should be of whom he spake, who's going to betray him. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. When he had dipped the sop, or dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, or was the money, was the, was the, was the treasurer, that Jesus had said unto him, By those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor, he then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Where did he go? He went to sell out Jesus for just a bag full of coins. Betrayal. Betrayal. Have you ever been betrayed? Betrayal does not happen from someone who's walking with God. Betrayal happens from someone who's let the devil have influence over their life. Church, I just want to remind you that Satan hates what we're doing here at 5344 Main Street. He hates it. Every Saturday morning, I stand right down there 
and I say, raise your hand if you have a testimony of someone who you have given the gospel to this week. And without fail, every Saturday I've asked that, someone has raised their hand and said, I got to lead someone to Christ over the last seven days. We train people to preach the gospel here. We send them out in the community to do that. Satan is losing souls to his hell. People are being saved to heaven. They're being saved away from his hell. They're being taken from his grasp. People come in here. They're broken and they're hurting. And they hear the healing balm of God's Word preached. And they're helped uh, uh, to go and love the Lord and love others. And Satan hates what's going on here. And Satan wants to unleash a full-blown assault against this church. And he only needs one. He only needs one of you who will be carnal enough to say, yeah, you can work through me. You know what? I don't like the way that such and such treated me. I don't like the way the deacon looked at me. I don't like the fact that he's a deacon and I'm not. I don't like the fact that Pastor Lejeune just seems to look past me and ask me to be involved in this or that. I don't like the way the pastor preaches. He preaches too loud. He preaches too long. I don't like the way uh, that uh, the politics around the church are structured with this or with that. And I don't like the way things are structured. And so you know what? I'm going to be a disgruntled Christian and I'm going to let Satan get in, wiggle into my heart, and I'm going to let him lead me to hurt this church. Oh, Satan only needs one. He only needs one to cause division and betrayal. Tonight, we need some of you to make a firm decision that you will not be that one. Listen. Churches cannot grow where egos abound. They cannot grow when our ego is at stake. Churches do not work when pride is at the forefront. Hey men, you get another guy in your car, it's not a debate about who knows the Bible better or who has more influence over the other. You know who we are? We're servants serving the Lord together. You want to be greater than the other guy in your car? Then get down and wash his feet. Not, not directly, but you get the metaphor. You want to be better than someone else in this church? Then you become the greatest servant of all. It's pretty hard for a servant of God who has a humble heart to be offended over anything anybody says or does. You get some egos locked up in this church, and you get a couple of uh, alpha males or females locking horns. Well, I'm not going to do this because she said this to me. I'm not going to do that because he acted this way toward me. Hey, you know what? If someone's mistreating you, you double down and move in their direction, and you show them even more love. We can learn to do that. Boy, Satan has no shot at dividing our church. Jesus was sold out for 30 pieces of silver because Judas was a man who was disgruntled. He did not have the clout of the upper three, Peter, James, and John. In his disgruntlement, he betrayed Jesus. Let's not let Satan work in our hearts this evening. I'd like every head bowed and every eye closed. Is Satan at work in our church? Oh, behind the scenes, he's looking for one of you that he can use.
Pastor Lejeune doesn't want to read every text message that's sent between church members. He doesn't want to know what's posted on social media. He doesn't want to know the gossiping phone calls. He doesn't want to know about the lunches that you have where you eat some church member or church leader for lunch or dinner. I don't want to know those things, but you know those things. Don't let Satan use you. Why don't you just decide tonight you're going to shut down the gossip and the slander and the lack of integrity. You're not going to let Satan use you to divide this church. Why don't you decide this evening that you're going to be the servant of all? We need Christians who will get busy washing feet, not worrying about position.